0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Exploring Minds with Bobby Mack. The object of the show is to speak to other philosophically minded individuals in an unassuming way as we explore life's big questions. And today I am joined by the indispensable and irreplaceable Caitlin, and, <laughs> as a as a co-host for this episode, uh, to team up with me to uh, have a conversation with a true philosopher, Mr. Joseph Nelson. Joseph Nelson is a graduate student preparing for a Ph.D. at uh, Duke University in Philosophy, and he's currently, his dissertation title is "A uh, Theory of Hedonism? A Defense
1: of Basic Prudential Hedonism.
0: A Defense of Basic Prudential Hedonism. Yes. All right. Uh, so I guess we'll get started talking about uh, your introduction to philosophy. Sure. So what originally got you started being interested in philosophy?
1: Oh, well, first of all, you call me Joe, I don't need to be so formal. Um, and you know, nobody told me this was going to be an unassuming conversation. I, I gotta say, I, I reserve the right to make all kinds of wild assumptions, uh, which I will not be defending or uh, or even or even discussing. Um, uh, so I got started in philosophy. I don't know. I, you know, I vaguely remember when I was probably about thirteen, my dad giving me this book that was called "Aristotle for Everybody." I think that was the name of it. Which I think was I think is kind of a famous book or was when it came out many decades ago. It was just sitting around in the house, but my dad for some reason thought it would be interesting to me. And I remember very little about the actual content of it, but I remember feeling you know, thinking it was very interesting. You know, I just introducing me to you know a way of thinking I'd never really been exposed to before in that way. Then um, I found another book in the house. Uh, it was called I think it was called The Passion of the Western Mind by a guy named I think his author's name is Richard Tarnas, this is it's just sort of a paperback mass you know about popular audience history of western philosophy i have no idea if it's considered reputable or anything like that but it was my first introduction to a lot of different stuff that was where i first most memorably uh, my first exposure to david hume i'd never heard of david hume before and i remember uh hume's uh views on causation being discussed in that book um, and you know many years later i learned that you know those views are subject Huge amount of scholarly dispute and so on, but I think the way it was presented in that book was basically that you know Hume, um, uh, Hume believed that you know uh, he argued that uh, you know causation is all in our heads. There are no cause and effect relationships out in nature. And he gave this very ingenious argument for that when he was you know publishing it. He was you know 26 years old or something like that. And I remember just being blown away by this because I thought that conclusion seems so wild and so implausible, and yet the argument seems unassailable. You know. I thought, that's incredible that, that, that somebody could pull that off, especially when they were so young. Um, and so that, I think that kind of got me rolling. And, um, uh, and I started, I started writing little essays for myself, you know, about philosophical topics. I remember I got a little paperback like introduction to ethics, you know, and I read this book and I thought, well, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. You know, and I wrote this little this little essay on uh, defending what I called moral relativism. Now I'm older and wiser now, and I know that the position that I defended is not really moral relativism; It was more like moral nihilism or something like that. Relativism is a different kind of thing. But um, basically, I, I went one by one through all the theories that I saw in this book, and so here's why this one's wrong, here's why this one's wrong. You know, very overconfidently, of course. Um, but that was how I got started. Basically, somebody, my parents, my dad got this idea that I might like this kind of stuff, and then it was he gave me a book, and then it was kind of off the races. I Just ask quick. How old were you when you
0: when you started writing those little essays? Uh, Thirteen, I think.
1: Okay.
0: Um, yeah, sorry. Oh, go ahead. And so, did, when you went, so by the time you went into college, you were like mm-hmm. committed to this idea. You said, "I want to study philosophy." Uh,
1: I wasn't hundred percent sure when I started college that I was going to major in philosophy, let alone that I was going to pursue it at, um, at all beyond college. But in mm-hmm. retrospect, there was no chance that anything else was going to. You know, I knew that I was almost certainly going to major in something in the humanities, but I thought, well, maybe history. Um, history also seems very interesting. And you know, I remember I took, in my freshman year, I took a linguistics class, and I thought, boy, linguistics seems really interesting. You know, maybe I'll end up doing linguistics, but it, it was always gonna be philosophy. You know, I was kidding myself. It was 100 percent always gonna be philosophy. There's really no other <laughs> there's really no other option. I, I I don't have the knack for anything um, actually useful or potentially useful. <laughs> and I find philosophy so that's just the way it was going to be.
2: So speaking of usefulness though, like so yeah. what do you see as like the role of a philosopher in our society? Like, I don't know, it's like people see them like, usually as kind of like remote, but like would you perform a more, I don't know, engaged, I guess, role as a philosopher or
1: um, oh. you mentioned teaching? Um I guess I, I don't see philosophers as having any particular role. Um I, I don't know that philosophers have any kind of distinctive um, social obligation or anything yeah. like that. But there are all things all kinds of things that philosophers can do, you know, I and mean, philosophers as I as I conceive of them. people who have philosophical skills as I conceive of them can do all kinds of good things. So you know, I mean one one thing is they can try to impart these philosophical skills onto others, uh, which is of course only valuable if those skills are valuable in some way. And I haven't even addressed that yet, but um, you anyway, know, something I would like to do is teach philosophy, and, um, uh, and by the way, by, by philosophical skills, I, I mean, you know, basically facility with arguments. So being able to uh, uh, understand and respond cogently to, to arguments, to the kinds of uh, arguments that people give when they're trying to rationally convince people. Um, so yeah, they can teach, they can do all kinds of, you know, public advocacy for things and do so in a more or less rational way. I mean, I know because I listened to the first episode of the show, you guys talked about Peter Singer a little bit. So, you know, there's a guy who's had, I mean, certainly by the standards of academic philosophers, a massive social impact. And he's done that in large part actually by giving people arguments. Um, that it seems to me that that's actually been the, the, the source of his success is giving people arguments that they find compelling. Um, and I happen to think that his goals are largely laudable, although, you know, there's a lot we can talk about there. But, um, yeah, some but of the controversies around
0: Singer. I think that uh, Peter Singer definitely does have that effect, although I feel that in a large way he's kind of unique in that way. Uh, there are not many philosophers other than Peter Singer that I think the, the average person could name off the top of their head. Maybe Aristotle sure. <laughs> is another example, and Peter Singer. Um, but I think that uh, I think that the reason why Peter Singer has been able to reach so many people in a public advocacy way, and just everyone knows the, the drowning child in the pond pro- uh, thought experiment, mm-hmm. Um, is because he doesn't labor, layer on so much jargon, mm-hmm. and uh, I feel that a lot of times, uh, you know, not to, not to name you or anybody else, but there's a there's a large trend I've seen. Like when you read a lot more of these of these more in depth philosophical papers, you see a lot of words like prima facie intuitionist, you know, categorically. <laughs> Uh, and so how do we strip a lot of that away for for people who actually might want to get interested in this stuff but when they see all those words they're like oh gosh I I don't know where to start
1: well um, I'm I'm of two minds about this Um, on the one hand I'm I'm averse to that kind of thing to some degree myself Um, and especially when I think it is actually being used to give the impression of profundity at the expense of actual clarity, um, (laughs) uh, which happens all the time. um, But at the same time, you know, these terms exist to serve basically as shortcuts for expressing ideas and inevitably when you have some kind of academic discipline, insider lingo develops and so on. Um, So, and I wouldn't want to take that away from people or suggest that they shouldn't use it under, uh, under any circumstances. Um, so, you know, I, I suppose that, um, it's very good for, uh, at least some working philosophers to try to produce work that is publicly accessible, um, to let people, uh, you know, dip their toe into philosophy without being put off by this stuff that is, you know, hostile to outsiders. So, yeah, I do think, I do think that, that, that kind of thing is very valuable, at least if, if getting people into philosophy really is valuable.
2: So, uh, like, you teach a lot of philosophy classes, right? Where we kind of, we were looking at your CV. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, how would you, like, how do you get started, like, if you teach an introductory philosophy class? Like, how, right. what do you, like, how do you present philosophy to them as, when they're first getting started?
1: Oh, boy, I love this question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love talking about it. Um, Boy, yeah. Well, I haven't actually taught Intro to Philosophy in some time. Unfortunately. Okay, I really like that
2: style. Of yes, I, yeah. I wish that
1: I had taught <laughs> it more recently. Didn't work out that way. Um, well, so boy, where to begin? I uh, I'll just begin here. When I put together a, a, a syllabus for Intro to Philosophy, and I've used a variation of the same syllabus every time I've taught it, um, I choose articles, you know, rather than book chapters or entire books or something. I choose articles that I can give my students for free, that they can get off of JSTOR, that I can upload for them. Um, And I choose articles originally written in English uh, sometime in the last 60 or 70 years. So more or less contemporary uh, English language philosophy. And I do this for various reasons. Um, This is, you know, there are a lot of intro to philosophy classes like the one that I took that will start with, you know, Plato and Aristotle or something like that, and kind of move in a more or less chronological fashion. And I've got nothing against doing that. Um, but I like to give students the impression right off the bat that philosophy is a living discipline. You know, it, was, it took me a while. It took me you know, several philosophy classes to even realize that there's a whole vibrant world of contemporary philosophy out there. A huge amount of it is being produced all the time. Um, and, it, and it's not all just you know, scholarship on historical figures. So I want to make that clear to them uh, right away. And, you know, of course, a lot of older philosophy, it has to be translated into English. um, And and there are all kinds of issues with that. And then even if it is originally written in English, it's written in, you know, 18th century English or something like that. And so there's the burden on students of getting acclimated to that and so on. So I just want to remove all of that and let them dig into it right away. And I try to choose papers that make straightforward, identifiable arguments on kind of um, uh, readily interesting topics. The other thing I do is I tell students um, from the beginning of the semester that this class is... Uh, based around two priorities the first priority is the priority of developing skills over learning material and the second priority is um, quality or quantity right so i tell them my goal for you is not for you to leave this class at the end of the semester having memorized a whole bunch of ideas or or, uh, or arguments and who said them and so on what i want to do is develop your philosophical skills which I mentioned a moment ago, I think of it in terms of um, facility with, with uh, understanding and responding to arguments. Um, that's what, what my introductory class is really all about. It's about developing those skills so they can forget the content of every single thing we read all throughout the semester. I hope they don't, but it's all right with me, more or less, if they do, as long as they have, uh, during the semester, used those readings, engage with those texts in order to uh, build those skills. Um, I realize I'm coming to the end of my train of thought here. I'm not 100% sure I've (laughs) answered your question thoroughly. Um, But yeah, there's much more I could say about this, but yeah. I wanted to say that I noticed
0: on one of your syllabi, you start with feminine affluence and morality. Yes. I I Every time I've talked, try to interrupt. No, I did not. That was not the very first thing I ever read, but it was given to me my first semester, my first ever philosophy course um, towards the end, because as you said, he likes to move in a chronological order this professor. But that was the one that grabbed me by the, by the throat, the the mind, yeah. I should say, grab me by the throat you of my mind. Your,
1: yeah, exactly. Your mind,
0: your mind, your mind. Right. It was like having I when I met Peter Singer, I told him this was like having Babe Ruth hit a baseball right to my forehead. Right. This was like nothing I'd ever read before, uh, and why I said, "What? First of all, why has K through 12 grade been so boring to me that I was never introduced to thought experiments like this right. in, in this way?" Right. Um, and I could t- I could tell you like line by line what that class discussion was like because it was so unique. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember a student raising their hand and being like, well, we can't help the drowning child and we can't, you know, work to, to end this uh, world hunger because there's not enough food in the world. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, you know, just interesting things like this. And you could tell that this was a room of people who had never thought about things. In, 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 well, I shouldn't say it like that. Um, there were a lot of people there who, like, eyes had lit up because it was their first time reading something so... Poignant, like this. Yeah, like a lot of people I know don't are poignant haters. They don't like that word, but I, I thought it was appropriate. <laughs> I so. have no problem
1: with the word poignant. Do
2: you keep poignant? anything wrong with that? I don't know. No,
0: the silent G kind mm, of I think gets okay, on people's yeah, nerves. That's right. um, so I may want to return to the the education point, but okay. uh, for now I do want to move into your actual thesis. Sure. Uh, so. I guess i'll let caitlin ask about it because she used to be a hedonist
2: yeah no in my, my intro to philosophy class i was just like we talked about hedonism and i just like couldn't unsee why that was true and just argued with this very patient professor for a long time mm-hmm. um, anyways uh how did you get into hedonism or like do you are you actually a hedonist or did you just write your dissertation on it i, I don't know um i'm actually a hedonist. actually a hedonist all right yes uh what style of
1: hedonist are Well, uh, as the title of my dissertation would suggest, I'm a basic, prudential hedonist, um, which means that uh, I am a hedonist about well-being. I'm a hedonist about, um, I'm a hedonist when it comes to the question of what is ultimately, fundamentally, intrinsically, there's some jargon for you, uh, (laughs) good or bad for people, right? What is (laughs) in people's ultimate self-interest to have a reward? So I think that pleasure is what's good for people, and pain is what's bad for people. You know, broadly construed, um, and that's the whole story when it comes to uh, what it is that makes your life good. For you. I'm also an ethical hedonist, but my my dissertation doesn't address that at all. We can talk about that.
0: Uh, now I think a lot of times when people think about hedonism, they think about something like Jeremy Bentham's. Philosophic calculus. Yes, right in which you literally are attempting to add (laughs) up Units of pleasure and then subtract off Units of pain and see if they're like you end up with a positive or a negative result Right. Yeah, exactly. Now. Do you think that like you can actually assign point values
1: to experiences like that? Uh, I don't think it can be done practically, but I think it can be done in principle.
2: Okay, so, I mean, I, I feel like the experience machine just has to come up then if, if sure. you're going to, so, so what are you would you would you join the experience machine then, or like just a machine, say, that could just like continuously activate that part of your brain that gives you pleasure, like if, is there something like that, like if someone just fully connects to that or commits to that, is that a good life?
1: Uh, I, I do want to answer that question, right. a wonderful question, um, but I just realized I, I didn't yeah. actually finish. Defining basic prudential hedonism. Is, this is my fault. I, I forgot to do that. <laughs> uh, so you know, all hedonists say that pleasure is what's good for you, pain is what's bad for you. All prudential hedonists, all welfare hedonists. Um, what makes basic prudential hedonism basic is that it is, I think, the most austere, let's say, version of hedonism that has any claim to plausibility. Right. So it is. It is. Uh, uh, just like the kind of Benthamite hedonism that, that uh, you were just talking about. Um, it says that not only is pleasure what's good for you and pain is what's bad for you, but all pleasures come in in principle quantifiable amounts. Uh, they are all commensurable with one another, so all kinds of different pleasures can just be added up. Same is true for pains as well. All pains have uh, in principle quantifiable magnitudes that are all commensurable and can just be added up. And if you want to know how good a person's life is, Uh, was for them or how good any stretch of a person's life was for them. You just add up all the pleasure, you subtract all the pain, or you add up the values of all the pleasures, you subtract all the pain, or you just do that arithmetic, and that gives you uh, the answer to how good their life was for them during that time. So then to go to the experience machine. Yes, let's do that. (laughs) All right, so um, the experience machine, uh, I suppose maybe I should say what it is just for any of those listeners who haven't heard of it. So it's a famous thought experiment experiment. uh, it comes from Robert Nozick's book *Anarchy, State, and Utopia*. Great book. Um, and uh, I don't actually remember exactly what he was up to in that part of the book. As I recall, it, you know, he wasn't. The purpose of the thought experiment in that context wasn't really to refute hedonism exactly. It was something more subtle than that, or subtle is not quite the right word. Anyway, that doesn't matter. The point is, since then it's been. You know, since that book came out in like 1971 or something like that. Um, People have gone back to it again and again to argue against hedonism specifically. So even if that wasn't what Nozick is up to exactly, that's what people have used it for. And it's this thought experiment that uh, revolves around a hypothetical machine that people can plug into um, uh, uh, so that the machine can simulate any experience that they want to have. So whatever experience you want to have, the machine can simulate it for you, um, and it will be absolutely indistinguishable to you while you are plugged into the machine. From reality, that experience will be exactly, from your point of view, it'll be exactly as if it's really happening. But in in reality, all that's happening is your brain is being stimulated in a certain way. So the way Nozick um, presented it to the reader was as a question about whether they themselves would choose to plug into the experience machine um, if they were assured that it could give them whatever experiences they wanted to have. And he suggested that uh, most people wouldn't do that. And what that was meant to show uh, was that people value things other than their experiences. People value things other than, you know, um, not only their pleasures and pains, but they they value things other than experiences, such as, for example, possibly being connected to reality in some way or something like that. Um, Now, since then, you know, there's been a huge amount of uh, literature on the topic of the experience machine. There's a version of it that um various philosophers have developed and discussed a little bit more recently um that does not involve the question being put to the reader of whether they themselves would plug into the machine because the complaint some philosophers have with that is well there could be all kinds of things influencing people's decisions other than considerations of well-being right um for example people you know one of the things that makes me think i probably wouldn't plug into the experience machine even if i were absolutely convinced that it could really do what they said it do and so on is that well if i plugged into the experience machine and let's just suppose i have to do it for the rest of my life because you know that's how the uh works then i would be sort of dead to the world you know i would be gone i think you know my parents would miss me and my friends would miss me and people would be very sad that i was (laughs) wiling away the rest of my life in isolation plugged into this machine and so there are moral considerations i want to put my family uh through that um so there are considerations r- relevant to that decision other than considerations of well-being. So if we want to isolate the relevance of this thought experiment to well-being, we, we need to do it a little bit differently. I mean, you could just ask, well, you know, if you were only considering your own well-being. But it's hard, it's hard for me to do that. So there's a variation that various philosophers have suggested, which is you know, forget about whether you would plug into the machine. Let's talk about two other people. Let's talk about it from a third-person perspective. Okay? Imagine two other people, and let's imagine that their lives are already complete. Okay, So imagine... Um, One of my advisors at Duke um, has written about a version of this case um, where uh, um, you imagine, I think they're like twin girls, right? So they're born, you know, minutes apart, right? One of them lives a a full and fulfilling life in the real world, but the other uh, uh, girl is whisked away at the very beginning of her life, plugged into an experience machine, you know, moments after birth, and she lives a life that from the inside is indistinguishable from her sister's life. So, moment to moment, they have exactly the same subjective experiences, all the same pleasures in the same order, the same intensity at the same time, same for pain, same for every other kind of conscious experience, right? So, to a hedonist, these lives are equally good, right? I mean, well, there's actually at least one hedonist I know of, Ben Bramble, who would disagree with that, but let's just go with the right kind of hedonism <laughs> and say, he just just he should agree, I'll put it that way, uh, that these lives are equally good for their subjects, right? They, these lives are equally high in well being. Okay? Um, and if you think about it that way, you're gonna zero in on the question of well being. Instead of asking, would you plug in, you know, right now at this point in your life, think about two, we think about it from a third person perspective, we think about two already completed lives, experientially identical, but one in the real world, one in the machine um, for virtually its entire uh, duration. Which of these two lives is better for the person who lived? that's that's this kind of updated version of the experience machine uh, thought experiment. And as I've already indicated, I think they're equally good, right? I accept the hedonist conclusion about this, that those two lives are equally good. Um, But, of course, the very reason people discuss this is because a lot of people disagree. A lot of people think, no, even if they're experientially identical, the life lived uh, in the real world has something more going for it from the point of
2: So I think it's interesting that. So, would you say you equate welfare with a good life?
1: Uh, I mean, I I equate welfare with a good life for the person living that life.
2: Okay, so like, so when you say that you are willing to not plug into the experience machine for the sake of your friends and family because yeah. there's like moral considerations, is yeah. that functionally like? Like you willing to live a slightly less good life for the sake of your friends and family, or do you think that like a component of a good life is morality, like that?
1: Oh, that's the first one. I, I I'm willing to sacrifice my self interest to some degree for the sake of, for the sake
2: of
1: okay. their well. Was that uh, Was that at all influenced by famine, affluence and morality? <laughs> you know, it actually wasn't. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think I read that paper until I. I, I was putting together that syllabus, you know, because I knew it was kind of a classic of intro to philosophy syllabi. Um, another Duke grad student who's who's since moved on is doing really well as uh, Aaron Ansell. I think he started his intro classes with that paper, and I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'll just rip that out, you know. Um, and that's when I actually read it. I, you know, I, I'd heard of the argument before, but um, but I hadn't actually read it up to that point. It's I actually don't remember how I. Aimed to how I started to come to these conclusions, um, it wasn't as a result of reading anything in particular. I don't think there was no there was no epiphany moment when I read something and, and thought, "Oh man, now I see the light now." And now I'm a you know hedonistic utilitarian. But somehow I ended up there regardless. Now I don't know what the difference
0: is, but I, I if you go to Peter Singer's Wikipedia page, yeah. it'll say that he has converted from being a preference utilitarian to a hedonist utilitarian. This is what I've heard, and I'm very happy. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I thought you might be. But yeah. well, what is the difference? If well, you if you know I don't.
1: Sure. Um I, I I I don't know the details of of singers um change of mind about this, but um yeah, well so you know, utilitarianism, a uh, very famous uh moral theory basically says, you know, morality is about maximizing utility where utility is typically understood to be the welfare of human beings or the welfare of sentient beings certainly Singer would prefer the sentient beings formulation of it and so that that uh, raises the further question of what does the well-being of uh, or welfare I just use those terms interchangeably um, what does the welfare of sentient beings consist in Uh, you know and so then you end up with different versions of utilitarianism uh, based on those different uh, welfare theories right I mean that is how I got into writing about this is because I was very interested in utilitarianism, I wanted to say something in defense of that theory, and then I realized, well, um, there's certainly plenty to do just in working out the theory of utility itself, and I was most attracted to hedonism for whatever idiosyncratic reason, and that's how I, I got into that. Um, but anyway, back to the actual question. Um, so, as we've already been talking about, you know, hedonists are people who think that uh, welfare is all about pleasure and pain, And, um, you know, preference theorists like Singer apparently used to be um, think that welfare is about the the, um, satisfaction of preferences or or, um, desires, right? And there are all kinds of variations among preferentists uh, about which preferences um, uh, are the ones, the satisfaction of which increases your welfare, uh, and so on. But that's the basic gist of it. That was a very long-winded way of saying, for a preference theorist, it's all about satisfying, rather than experiencing pleasure.
0: Now, one of the things that Caitlin and I talked about on the first episode was Mm antinatalism, and have you spoken to uh, any antinatalists about your theory? I mean, because if if someone's an antinatalist, they'll generally think that the that the pains will always outweigh the pleasures over the course of one's life.
1: Yeah, uh, I haven't spoken to anyone who's like a card carrying antinatalist. I've talked to my (laughs) friend Tim Tim Burkhardt, who's another Duke graduate student uh, and a really interesting guy who you might see about trying to get on this podcast, if he'll do it. Um, and he's much more familiar with, with David Benatar's work. He's be the most famous antinatalist, I'm sure you know. Um, so we, we've talked about it a little bit. Um, but I don't know any any card-carrying antinatalists. But it is very, I mean, it's, it's something that I, certainly that I have thought about because, you know, uh, sometimes um, philosophers will talk about this concept of a life worth living this is a notion that comes up, and I know it came up on an earlier episode. Um, it's a notion that comes up in, in discussions about well-being, and I think the kind of uh, standard way of, of thinking about that is um, that a life worth living is one which, you know, uh, your welfare is in the black, right? It's it's above zero, overall. Um, and, you know, if, if my version of hedonism is correct, well, there's a further question whether people's lives are generally worth living by that very standard, by the standard of basic prudential hedonism. And I actually think that there is a compelling reason to suspect that life in general may not be worth living um, by that standard if we understand life worth living in those terms. Um, Because suffering is a, uh, you know, pain, suffering, right, broadly construed, um, is a pretty and ubiquitous phenomenon and um, just on the basis of introspection um, it seems to me that the most intense pains you know physical and emotional that I've experienced in my life really have no equal on the positive side you know like um, uh, you know I've had my heart broken in my life I've never experienced anything as pleasurable as that was painful you know what I mean um I've never had, I've been fortunate enough not to experience any, you know, severe physical injury, but even, you know, uh, the physical pains I have experienced, you know, the most intense of those is probably more intense than the most intense pleasure I've ever experienced, and most of the day, you know, I'm fortunate enough to live a pretty cushy life, um, but, you know, most of the day I go through in a state of probably more or less hedonic neutrality, Um <laughs> So, or maybe mild positivity. And so a lot of that mild positivity is going to have to pile up to outweigh uh, the really intense negatives. And that's for me, that's for somebody who's, you know, by any reasonable measure, lived an extremely fortunate and relatively painless life. Um, so let's suppose I, you know, I'm living an average life. I'm not sure if that's at all true, but let's just suppose that I am. It may be that even my life has had more suffering uh, than pleasure in it when you tally it all up. Um, now, that... So that's definitely, you know, grist for the antinatalist mill. I'm not sure that uh, anti is the right conclusion to draw from that, even if that is true. But it is certainly trending in that direction. I can't deny that. Uh, what I
0: know that there's a there's some kind of thought experiment. I'm going to get the details of it wrong, but uh, about an average person whose whose life equals, you know, a thousand hedons, right. positive hedons at the end of it. And uh, there's a jellyfish that ha, that you know that uh, lives, uh, you know, a thousand years and and has a life. Uh, where it experiences one heat on per year. Right. And we have the the, con- the conundrum of the jellyfish having a life of equal value uh, to the human being <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> given enough time. I don't think that's a conundrum. What's wrong with that? <laughs> you guys something against jellyfish? What's the deal? Uh, I don't know why that strikes me as difficult to subscribe to on its face. Uh,
1: well, I mean, you gotta think about it this way. We don't wanna conclude from that. Necessarily, that the life of the jellyfish is of equal value. We do want to conclude, just on the basis of uh, arithmetic, that the jellyfish's life altogether is just as good for the jellyfish as the person's life is good for them. But that may not be the whole story when it comes to evaluating uh, uh, the uh, these two beings. Right? There may be other considerations that affect determination of how valuable they are. For example, their effect on others.
2: Um, so this is shifting a little bit, but kind of going back to this idea of like a good life is a sum yeah. of hedons. So yeah. like, what do you think about the idea of somebody who like, Uh, asserts that they're, uh, or doesn't care about their life being a song of Hidons. So, for instance, uh, consider a starving artist who doesn't make any money, doesn't get any appreciation, you know, and lives in poverty, is struggling Mm -hmm. to make ends meet objectively on the hedons, Like, they're just not doing great. But they find their art deeply meaningful and don't care that other people don't appreciate it and find it deeply important to them to make this art. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's a kind of a fulfillment to that, but it never, like, Feels good, you know, in the way that we would usually call it pleasure. Mm. And at the end of their life, they assert that their life was definitely worth living.
1: Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have I have many thoughts about that kind of example. I'm, I'm trying to decide which one to start with here. Um, okay, so one thing I want to ask about that example is what did what do you mean when you say that the artist finds their art or their, their work meaningful?
2: Um, let's say he finds it very important to him to, to do that, or okay. he like, um, thinks it's important to express himself in this way. I'm trying to dance around where it's like enjoys. Yeah, well, okay, that. so yeah, I'm trying to trap you. <laughs> yeah. To something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, I yeah, mean, I maybe he does, but like, yeah. okay, yeah, I'll, I'll allow that. Like, he enjoys doing that, but yeah. like, still on the heat on like level, right? He's still living in poverty and yeah. no one's appreciating him, so he's not getting any satisfaction from that. Um, Probably getting anti satisfaction from not being appreciated, let's say. Sure. Um
1: Yeah, well, so we have to consider, you know, um, what are the artist's alternatives here? Does the does the artist have another path available to them that would be better than the life of a starving
2: artist, Mm-mm.
1: right? And maybe that they they are just uh, they have the misfortune of being disposed to live uh, a, a life that has more suffering than pleasure in it. And Let's suppose that's not true of everybody, right? Um, but it could be that you know if they tried to leave art behind, go straight, get a regular job or whatever, that'd be even worse for them. Right, because they'd be they'd feel so stifled. They would feel that their life lacks meaning. They would lack the enjoyment that uh, they get from finding their work meaningful, and so on. Um, so their life would be even worse if they didn't do that.
2: Yeah, maybe, but like he could also just get a regular job that makes a re- reasonable amount of money, mm-hmm. and then do art on the side and get some heat on from that. So he doesn't yeah. feel totally stifled. But he wants to spend his whole life doing that, like art, because he thinks it's more important.
1: Right. So now we get to the point where I just say, look, if, if the artist could get a, a, a regular job and live a much better life, uh, then it's in his interest to do so. Well, and what if he extent, doesn't want to? Um, that is incorrect. <laughs> 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 I mean, really. I think that that is, you know, from I mean, the point of view of welfare, that's, that's an irrational desire. Can people have irrational desires? Okay, well, um, now we're going to get into... <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm out of my depth talking about the rationality or irrationality. I was hoping you wouldn't uh, call me out on, on that. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna say, I'm speaking crudely when I said it's an irrational desire. What I mean is that it's a desire that, in this case, uh, motivates the person to do things that are not in their own interest. Um, and that's all that I meant by that. But exactly how we evaluate desires in terms of their rationality, I don't really have a view about that. I wish I did. Uh, so I have to think about it.
0: Well, I guess it's, it's not so much irrational desire. It's uh, hopefulness for the future. Mm-hmm. And the starving artist probably thinks that some point down the road, they will be appreciated, right? And they, they will be thought of as like a hero for their work. And they're just holding out for that, that uh, giant positive surge in hedonks that they're going to get.
1: Sure, yeah. And look, and, and if they have reason to believe that that's really coming, then maybe there isn't anything irrational about continuing on this path. Because they're justified in believing that it'll pay off. But, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, it all depends on how you spell out the details of the, of the case. Well, the one thing that I was going to say is that that, that kind of
0: is a parallel for going back to the Edding list example. Yeah. On the whole, maybe there's a compelling case that the hedons of a life are negative. Mm-hmm. But you can only make that assessment once a person's dead. Sure. Right. So they're always holding out hope that the <laughs> mild hedonic neutrality that you spoke of earlier is, is going to weigh out in the end.
1: <laughs> yeah it could be well, I, I imagine this is what every parent wants for their child you know, is, I'm, just, you know I'm just hoping or you're holding your child in your arms in the hospital and like I just hope that I hope that their life is slightly more pleasurable than painful due to the accumulation of mildly pleasant <laughs> moments over their life I know that's what I would want for my kids
2: I mean what about people like okay well let's stipulate like that the artist like wanted that but wasn't comfortable with it being after his death so he'd never get the heat on returns or something like that. But he found it you know, meaningful, hoping that it'll influence someone. Kind of like how you were willing to make sacrifices for like your family or something like mm-hmm. that. And that's something that's important to you, like that kind of style of decision making. Like, would you consider that irrational?
1: Well, I mean, again, I don't have a real theory of rationality yeah. uh, here. Um, but let's just suppose for the moment that we are saying that desires are rational to the extent that being motivated by them tends to maximize welfare, right? and irrational to the extent that acting or being motivated by them uh, tends to minimize welfare. Um, depending on how you spell out the details of the case, that could be a rational or irrational desire. It all depends on whether, for that hypothetical person, acting on it tends to make their life better or worse for from a, from a hedonistic point of view. And I'm perfectly comfortable with all of the implications of this, up to and including telling the artist, you should knock it off because it's never going to work out and you should get a real job because you will be living a better life. Have you told people things like that? I never have. Um, but I think after I get my PhD, I'm going to start. I think once I once I have that credential, I'll have the authority to start telling people how they should live. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Let's see. Sorry. Let's see. So, um, yeah,
0: go for it. So when when you say that all pleasures are commensurable,
2: yeah,
1: what did what did you mean by that exactly? I mean that um, again. I think in principle, um, every pleasurable experience, every pleasure experience, um, has a certain intensity, and uh, and so it has a an in principle quantifiable magnitude, right? every pleasure has a certain amount of pleasure in it, and I think that um, uh, you can just add all of those pleasures up. There are no problems with sort of discontinuity in the hedonic calculus, right? So, I mean, to, 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 to really get specific about my view on this, I think that all pleasures feel fundamentally the same way, right? So these pleasure magnitudes are amounts of a certain distinctive um, conscious quality conscious feeling. I'm speaking kind of imprec- more imprecisely than you would think for somebody who's writing a dissertation. So bear, you know, bear with me. Um, and so all pleasures are fundamentally the same in that respect. Um, and so uh, so those magnitudes are all commensurable in the sense you can just add them all up, right? You're not adding up units of different kinds of things, right? It's not like adding up apples and oranges, right? <laughs> it's uh, it's It's more like, you know, Adding up uh, quantities of 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 the same substance.
0: Well, yeah, because that's usually I think one of the main objections people come up with, and when they talk about eudaimonia, yeah, Yeah. right, I guess, which is uh, I don't know what that exactly translates to. From nobody does. (laughs) (laughs) People
1: (laughs) say happiness or flourishing.
0: Flourishing or the life well lived. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Right. Uh, A lot of people don't feel that as being synonymous with uh, scratching an itch. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, So it's like. It just seems counterintuitive to, to say that you scratch enough itches or you orgasm mm-hmm. enough times. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is commensurate with uh, passing an exam. Because mm-hmm. I know that those, when you, when you say that they feel the same, I guess you mean, you must mean feel in a different way. Because mm-hmm. the pleasures don't really feel <laughs> the same sensationally, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but there is a pleasure in both of those experiences.
1: Yeah. Well, so I think they do feel the same way in some respect. I mean, I certainly don't think that the relief of passing an exam feels exactly the same way as having an orgasm. Although that would be great um, if it were like that, but uh, but in one direction. So studies, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I uh, so you know I think that you know the, the experiences that we call you know uh, pleasures or pleasurable experiences are phenomenologically complex. They've got all kinds of different aspects to them that are sort of overlapping in our consciousness in the moment. It's hard to actually sort of stop and reflect on them because the the experiences are ephemeral, right? As soon as you stop to kind of try to figure out what's going on, you kind of ruin it for yourself. And then it's even, I don't know if it's more difficult, but it's also difficult to have any kind of clear memory of exactly what something felt like. So uh, my sense is that, you know, pleasurable experiences and also painful experiences, they're phenomenologically complex. They got all kinds of different aspects. I mean, let's just think about, you know, you could have, there could be sort of a, a just think about physical sensations. There could be a pleasantly warm sensation. There could be a pleasantly cold sensation, right? Um, and you know, warmth and cold certainly don't feel the same way. But I think insofar as those things are pleasant, there is something that feels the same about those two things. And it's there amidst all the other uh, um, uh, phenomenological aspects. Perhaps it's sort of permeating all the other phenomenological aspects. Or perhaps it has actually a separate sensation that could be felt in isolation, but is generally accompanied by other things. Um, I haven't, you know, decided exactly what I think about that. I'm not sure I'll ever come to a firm conclusion about that. Um, but that's what I mean when I say that they all feel the same way. Not that they're identical, but there is some feeling in common in the midst of all the other phenomenological complexities that is the same. Right? And it varies in intensity.
0: Yeah, I do tend to agree with what you were saying about the uh, the worst pains being worse than the pleasures are good. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: I mean, so do you distinguish between pleasure and fulfillment at all? Or, like, um, how do you think about that style of distinction?
1: Uh, what do you, uh, I don't know what you mean by mm. fulfillment.
2: I would say fulfillment. So I, I would typically associate the word pleasure with kind of a fleeting experience, like something mm. tasting really good or sure. something like that, uh, versus fulfillment is this, like, deeper kind of underlying lasting attitude of mm. satisfaction that you have towards whatever you're doing in your life right now or some. Like way that things are, and those kind of I I'd be willing to buy the idea that all like pleasures like eating good food are kind of doing the same thing, but like satisfaction seems like it might be different to me. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I, I do distinguish between those things. Um, I mean, so far as fulfillment uh, is or involves some kind of attitude, I think it's definitely different from pleasure. Um, my view about the nature of pleasure at this moment, um, and I'm still you know I'm still working this out, um, is that you know pleasure is not an attitude. In, Pleasure does not actually involve attitudes. Attitudes are, are in, in no way constitutive of pleasure. That's controversial. Um, my own advisor vehemently disagrees with me about that. But um, you know, is more popular theory of pleasure, or family theories of pleasure, says that um, pleasure, by definition, involves uh, some kind of positive attitude towards an experience or something like that. Um, and I don't think so. I think I think pleasure and pain are fundamentally feelings, phenomenological.
2: Um, so I, I
1: do I do say that uh, you know, pleasure and fulfillment are distinct, but there can be a lot of pleasure in fulfillment. I mean, people often speak about feeling fulfilled, right? And my interpretation of that is that every once in a while, people take stock of their life or some aspect of their life, and uh, they feel good about it, right? Which is to say they actually feel pleasure in the act of contemplation uh, of their life. Um, and I think those, those pleasures are just as good as any other uh, insofar as they are intense and lasting. But isn't there kind of a bias there? I mean,
0: most people on their uh, most people tend to have, I guess, a bias toward optimism about their life, mm-hmm. right? Do you think that like people could be mistaken about that, or do you think that that matters that they're mistaken about it? Like, could their life on the whole have been bad or not worth living, even if they think it was?
1: Yeah, people can definitely be wrong about the overall quality of their lives, certainly. And yeah, there may there may indeed be, you know, maybe even for you know, uh, good evolutionary reasons a tendency among most people optimistic, both about um, their future welfare and about uh, you know, uh, how good their life has been for them um, so far. But yeah, I think people can absolutely be mistaken um, about that. So now, what do you say about
0: something being good for you at the expense of something being bad for somebody else?
1: Um, so now we're moving into, into ethics. Right. Yeah. I guess is, this, is, this is great. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do that. So, like I said before, you know, my dissertation is about is completely about well being. It's all about theory of well being. Um, but I got into this through an interest in utilitarianism, so it all comes back to ethics for me. And you know, I am a, um, a hedonistic utilitarian when it comes to uh, ethics. More recently I've been sort of uh, becoming uh, increasingly uh, taken by scalar hedonistic utilitarianism. Um, as opposed to vector, he. Thinking, <laughs> I, I don't know if there's any such thing as vector. Um, maybe, maybe you know, maybe that. I need to come up with some theory and call it, <laughs> and then that'll be my distinct contribution. Um, no, I mean scalar utilitarianism is. Um, I mean, well, you know, people we'll describe it in different ways, but the, well, it's usually described, um, especially by this guy, Alistair Norcross, who's probably the most famous defender of it, um, is that it's it's a it's a version of utilitarianism that. Um, Basically, you know, on all scale utilitarians out there, forgive me if this is not exactly the right <laughs> way of putting it, but it basically dispenses with the notions of right and wrong, obligation, permissibility, duty, right? And says that uh, all moral evaluation um, is just about degrees of goodness and badness. That's what it's about. So to the extent that we evaluate an act, we are evaluating it for its conduciveness to producing utility, and we say it's good to the extent that it conduces to utility and, 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 uh, and less good to the extent that it doesn't, bad to the extent that it conduces to disutility and less bad to the extent that it doesn't. And that's what all moral evaluation uh, should really be about, if we're going to be correct about it. Right. Um, so the question was... Uh,
0: Something being good for you at yeah. the expense of being of it being bad for somebody else. Yeah, so that can happen all
1: the time. People take pleasure in other people's suffering all the time. People take pleasure in causing other people suffering um, all the time, unfortunately. And, um, you know, I think to the extent that people are causing other people to suffer, that's bad. And to the extent that they're enjoying it, that's good for them, you know. Um, so, but yeah, my, my basic, you know, uh, position on people causing, you know... Other people suffering for their own pleasure is uh, that's good to the extent that pleasure is involved, and bad to the extent that suffering is involved. So you
0: would then defend, in theory, some pretty th- some pretty objectionable things uh, things that would be conventionally I would seen never as
1: defend something
0: objectionable <laughs> <laughs> uh, things that would conventionally be seen as morally questionable yes. under the right circumstances yes. because yes. it increases the hedons enough for the psychopath. Right. Interesting
1: yeah but I mean that doesn't you know in in order to get me to agree to something like that you have to uh, describe the case in a very particular way right so you have to describe you know if we're talking about a psychopath right who enjoys torturing people or something like that you know you're going to have to stipulate that the psychopath enjoys it so much that it outweighs um, uh, it outweighs the disvalue of the suffering and not only that but there's nothing else a psychopath could be doing with his life that would be better from a hedonistic point of view. And you can go ahead and stipulate all that and I'll say, okay, well, in that case, yes. It's good for the psychopath to go for it, right? Um, but I don't think that that really happens in real life. I mean, especially, as I said, because I tend to think that, you know, um, the suffering that you can cause a person, in actual fact, tends to be a, a lot more intense and long-lasting than the pleasure you can get from it, right? Um, so I, I... I this is empirical speculation, right? Um, this is one of these assumptions I won't be defending that I'm talking about, but but I suspect that uh, you know no torturer has ever gotten so much pleasure from torturing someone that it outweighs the pain that they caused.
2: Okay, but like we can we can make it not torture, right? Like let's say there's a stalker who mm-hmm. um, has set up some way of very non-intrusively, like, filming somebody in their private bedroom or something like that. And gets a ton of pleasure out of that Mm because they're a creep, right? And, like, the person in that room, like, who's being stalked by this person, like, never notices, uh, ever finds out. The person, the stalker, never shares it with anyone, so it won't affect their reputation or anything like that. No suffering occurs, and the stalker gets tons of pleasure. Yeah. Uh, Is that good? Morally?
1: Uh... The pleasure that the stalker experiences <laughs> is good for them, and that is good morally.
2: Okay, yes. you're committed to that. I am committed to All right, that. all right, I respect yes, because that. Again, you, you kind of yeah. have
1: to be. I, I, <laughs> yeah. You have to stipulate. Notice, you have to stipulate all these yeah. things, right? The stalker never gets caught. The person right. never notices. Uh, the stalker never tells anybody, right? You have to stipulate all of that stuff. And I completely understand being uh, uncomfortable with that. I mean, I experience a little bit of discomfort, uh, thinking about that case myself and what I you know I'm committed, theoretically committed to saying about it. Um, but then I ask myself, well, why do I feel uncomfortable with that? You know? What's the explanation for this feeling of discomfort? Or let's not even talk about the feeling of discomfort. I, I feel a sense of intellectual resistance even now to saying that. Well, what's the best explanation of that feeling of intellectual resistance? Right? I and mean, then I say the same kind of thing about the experience machine, and all of these kinds of anti-hedonist thought experiments. What is the right explanation? of the sense of intellectual resistance that I feel. Well, one possibility is I feel that intellectual resistance because that is that that, uh, that feeling is a reflection of the real facts about morality, right? It's because I my mind is in touch with the real facts about morality in some way, such that, you know, despite all the stuff that I've talked myself into believing, uh, uh, I still feel that, that sort of sense of intellectual dissonance, right? Um, Another possibility is that I feel that intellectual dissonance for other reasons, reasons that have nothing to do with tracking the actual truth about what is intrinsically, prudentially, or morally valuable in this case. Um, So, for example, it could be that, uh, um, you know, I'm well aware, uh, as I in fact am, of the actual suffering that stalkers, peeping toms, etc. cause to people. I'm aware of the suffering that people feel when they feel that their privacy has been violated. And so even if you stipulated this case, nothing like that ever happens, nothing goes wrong. I know that the kind of thing this person is doing is the kind of thing that can cause quite serious suffering, and so I am reluctant to condone it. But I have to condone it because of the ways that you spelled out the case, right? And I'll note that if indeed there have been any such cases, which there may very well have been, nobody knows about by definition, you, except the stalker, right? right? And I just assume none of us in this room are stalkers, so none of us knows whether or not this has ever happened. We can only speculate. Um, listeners, I wish the listeners could have seen the face. Probably, but, um, but nobody knows if this kind of thing has ever happened, right? And um, and so what we have to do, when we're thinking about this case, is like think about what we would think about the sort of thing that we would never know. Uh, and so I, I don't, I don't, I, so I, I feel that sense of intellectual resistance I don't trust.
0: On the stalker question, I just want to say that Caitlin is the one who looked my address <laughs> up on the voter registry, <laughs> I, okay? I
1: just wanted you to
2: be aware that we could do it since <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like,
0: yeah. Thank I'm you. That's not creepy. That's good, No, exactly. i just a
2: friend. Okay,
0: sure. After saying that I felt uncomfortable with giving out my address, you just immediately go home and look it up. Okay. All right. Um, but... You know, <laughs> I tend to agree with your second explanation more. The mm-hmm. first explanation that you gave, like, oh, my mind is in touch with the facts about morality. Yes. That can so often be – your mind can so often be misguided, mm-hmm. I think, about those things. It's like that's why we need philosophy. Right. Maybe we don't need philosophy for this particular case, but the one that comes to my mind is incestuous relationships mm-hmm. between perhaps two sisters where there's no case of there being any children that are born with deformities or anything like that. And they're twins, let's say, so there's no power dynamic imbalances. Mm-hmm people will still have some kind of moral objection to that based on their evolutionary response, would be my answer to that.
2: Right. Um, I've got a pretty good moral objection to incest, actually.
0: The example that I just gave? Uh,
2: yeah, so like, okay, I think, I, I don't agree that like it's all about pleasure. I think like morality is a set of heuristics that allow us people to like live well together in general, which is kind of like pleasure-oriented or like tends to increase the well-being of people, but I'm more comfortable with like a broader set of like principles or heuristics against that so i think there's like a lot of value to having uh platonic not um platonic unconditional love in our society right because like sex tends to complicate relationships and so if we have like a social norm against that style of relationship and therefore make all family-based relationships like tending to be like unconditionally loving and platonic that probably is good for our society and overall increases people's overall well-being and so i'm fine with having like a moral norm against incest because of that even though there are particular cases where i'm sure everyone involved is enjoying it a lot
0: so so Mm -hmm. you you would use the general case to say that the particular case is wrong
2: yeah like i'm saying because it tends to not work out or tends to like be bad and like kind of like the existence of that sort of thing will undermine it for other people too
0: you would apply that to the stalker case then i guess as well
2: yeah i'm comfortable with just having like heuristic things like that and like using moral judgments there rather than based on like how people like experience pleasure in individual cases fair yeah all
0: right i have a i have a I have a worse one for you than the stalker example. Okay. I, was, I,
2: I don't know if you're going to go there. I'm going to go there. Be, I'm going there. Wait, right. this might not be
0: what you're thinking Yeah, about. okay, okay,
2: yeah, whatever. We,
0: okay, so one day the technology will be developed in which, like we're, we're already starting with deep fakes. This is what I was thinking yeah, yeah, we knew where I was going with this. Uh, the technology will be invented such that we will be able to make real-life simulations and videos and movies of whatever mm-hmm. we want. Mm-hmm. Now, you can imagine... What people, what certain people might want to view, yeah, that's illegal for them to view. Cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, Now, no people are actually being harmed in these films. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just, it's all. I don't know what the word is. CGI, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. But it looks totally real. Yeah. Uh, And they get some kind of immense pleasure from from viewing Mm -hmm. these this violence or you know sexual sexual activity between, uh, pick whatever two species sure. you want, or two, you know, two age differences, whatever you want. Sure. Uh, do you, is that okay morally? What do you think about that? Well, I, you know, I think it's
1: good to the extent that it produces pleasure and bad to the extent that it leads to suffering. You know, that's the boring answer that I'm going to give to absolutely every <laughs> single thing. Um, but sure, you know, I, I do feel a sense of discomfort with that also. Um, and again, it, I ask the same question, which is, well, what is what is the source of my com- discomfort or intellectual resistance to approving of that and uh, you know uh, again i think it comes down to um the fact that i associate the kinds of things you're talking about whether it's you know horrible violence or or you know criminal sexual activity or whatever i associate those things so strongly with suffering that um that i'm uncomfortable with the idea of people taking enjoyment in it i have some hunch that taking enjoyment in viewing those things will make people more likely to Acts right, and so that's where I think that discomfort is coming from. But you know, once again, if you if you just stipulate, you know, none of those concerns are, are, are anything to worry about in this hypothetical example. And I will say, okay, you know, forget that little bit of gut discomfort. I'm 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 going to approve of it. So this is reminding me of a little
2: bit of like I think this came up in the last podcast too with Jonathan Haidt's like um, like moral foundations theory. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with it?
1: I, with the basic gist of
2: it, yeah. Yeah, so, like, he's got all sorts of stories, right, where he'll, like, tell people stories like what we're discussing, and right. then people, like, he will be like, well, you know, it sounds wrong, but I guess it's fine since no one is harmed. Right. But then he points out that people from, like, other backgrounds typically, or, like, conservatives usually, like, will tend to appeal to other things and just kind of, like, bottom out there. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about the idea of that other people can just bottom out at a different place in terms of what they think is most important?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's it, there's no denying that most people are not uh, hedonists in my sense, or they're not. You know, they're not welfare hedonists of any kind. People um, value all kinds of things other than pleasure. They, uh, they disvalue, if that's uh, the word to use here, all kinds of things um, other than pain. And so, you know, I'm theoretically committed to saying that they're wrong insofar as they have those beliefs, um, but I think it's understandable. For people to have those beliefs in some sense of that word, um, because the kinds of things that they object to tend to be things either that uh, cause them to suffer when they see them uh, violated, or that they see these norms violated. So you know, purity norms. Um, I forget what, what the other foundations are. There's one that has like, to do with like, like, patriotism right, or authority, like authority or something like, like that. Yeah. People, people suffer when they when they when they see those those yeah. norms being sort of flagrantly violated. Um, and, and in many cases, the violation of those norms is actually very closely tied to suffering, right? So, um, you know, the norm against incest, for example, you know, actual incest tends not to resemble the kinds of hypothetical cases that Hype describes. It tends to involve a great deal of suffering for various reasons, um, yeah, uh, and other kinds of impurity. You know, I forget the uh, the other examples that he gives, but you know, involving you know. Um,
2: Washing your flag with it, washing your toilet with an American flag, or something. yeah. So that that's the kind of thing right, that people right.
1: people are, I think people are upset by, viscerally upset yeah. by. And so it's understandable that they would they would come to see, you know, the uh, um, the the honor of the flag or something like that is intrinsically valuable. You seem to dislike that idea. No, you seem no. to not
0: like someone
1: washing their mm-hmm. toilet with a
0: flag.
2: To me, it's just kind of perfect because it's, it's definitely innocuous. Like, there's no even like making a mistake that that tends to harm anyone. It's not right. hurting anyone, but there's like a certain population that would be very offended by that. Personally, mm-hmm. I don't really care. I don't think it's a good way to wash your toilet, but like I don't care personally. Okay. It's more so just like I don't know. I think it's the best like divisive example here, where you can't really relate that back to.
0: Yeah, I remember saying that I don't I don't tend to really care about anything other than harm. It's very hard for me to bottom out somewhere else.
2: Yeah, me too. <laughs> but it, you
0: were talking about how, like, I guess unless you're a committed hedonist, mm-hmm. everybody values those different th- things to some degree. Yeah. Right. But I guess for you, it's like, for lack of a better phrase, to hell with patriotism. Yeah. Right. It's hedonism. Yes, he- heat-ons all the way <laughs> yeah will you even
2: like will you allow tiebreakers like what about like if you could have some situation where like there's an equal number of heatons but one of them is more fair um no i just like,
1: think those are equally good equally good,
2: good. no preference choose randomly. no preference public coin you really yeah okay I mean. <laughs>
0: uh so I don't want to talk about uh huh. politics that much um but you know I'll go for it um, so, how does this relate to what we ought to do to help people in other countries as America?
1: Yeah. Um, well, so as I mentioned a, a, a moment ago, I am uh, increasingly taken by the scalar version of utilitarianism. And so, what I'm inclined to say is there is nothing that we should do, there are only things that it is better or worse to do Um, so you know that doesn't really answer the substance of your question but for some reason I can't help but insist on this point Um, so but to try to answer the substance of your question you know what would it be better for us to do because
0: I feel that a lot of people are like well obviously there are things that are better that we could do yeah I think a lot of people are not happy with what we're currently doing we're
1: not doing Yeah, so it would be better for us to try to, uh, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, at the political level of the the federal government, it would be better for the federal government to, uh, you know, take measures to improve people's lives, irrespective of uh, where they live or who they are. Um, I don't know exactly how best to do that. um, But that's the kind of thing that I would like every, you know, powerful organization in the world.
0: One of the things that Caitlin and I were talking about before you came in was that uh, the American government seems to have a bad track record of doing these kinds of things mm-hmm. even if it's even if it well, it claims to have the best <laughs> intentions in mind right? Uh, even if that were true, yeah. do you feel that it I feel that it just gets these things so wrong so often? Yeah uh, Is it worth it to keep reiterating on this say, <laughs> harping on the same idea and saying well if policy X didn't work, we need stronger policy X. Or we need policy why? And don't worry, um, we'll take care of it this time.
1: Yeah, well, it depends on what you what exactly you're talking about. I mean, if you're talking about something like, you know, uh, invading other countries to overthrow their governments, or sponsoring, uh, funding, training people to overthrow governments in other countries, you know, I would like the government to knock that off. <laughs> First of all, I don't trust. I don't trust that the, the intentions have been good in any case, um, and also because, yeah, because it'd be absolutely horrific. Track record, irrespective of what the um, what the intentions were. Um, I've been talking about something more benign, like I don't know, um, you know, monetary aid to you know, less developed countries or something like that, which has various unintended consequences. You know, I don't know of any. Re- I can't think of any real examples of this, but I know this is the kind of thing people talk about. You just throw money at a problem, you know, throw money at the problem of poverty or something like that. It doesn't produce a kind of sustained um, solution to it. Well, I still think that's the right kind of thing to do. Take measures to reduce poverty. Use the immense resources of the U.S. government to take measures to reduce poverty. And so I think we should just try to learn from the failures of those cases, and, and, and you know, not necessarily do more of the same. In the hopes <laughs> that if you do more of the same kind of thing, it'll work out this time. But do things along those lines. Uh, you know, yeah, to try to uh, to try to reduce suffering. Rather the political rhetoric seems to always be
0: that uh, money is the issue; mm-hmm. that it's just a problem of money. And I do tend to agree that just money is is it's not a, a lot of times a problem of money. Mm-hmm. And the classic example that you can bring up is, you know, somebody uh, who's asking you for money, uh, who's a drug addict, giving them money may kill them, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I don't know how you feel about this. And I uh, I was reading recently a paper, and I shared it with uh, Caitlin about the. Uh, ethnography of poverty Mm -hmm. and it appears that uh people who are very uh keen on wanting the u.s government to increase its monetary aid and do more to help people overseas who have actually been in the trenches of these third world countries were are very disheartened to see the spending habits of people in third world countries and to see Mm -hmm. that when you give them money uh a lot of their spending habits seem to be on non-essential items when they don't that's have the true. money to spend on A items.
2: lot of their salaries are spent on non-essential items, but if you give them cash, right. they will spend it on things
0: that are good. Sorry, sorry. Let me, yeah, let, me, let, me let me, sorry, yes. <laughs> I, I will, I will fix that. That the, uh, it was something like half, something like half 50% of Pakistanis who are living on a salary yeah. of uh, $2 a day or less uh, are spending exorbitant amounts of their money on uh, wedding festivals that they don't exactly have the money to spend on these mm-hmm. things. Um, I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't know what the solution is, but uh, I'm not going to tell them that they need to change their culture and stop caring about weddings so much.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just, okay, I'll be the bad guy. And I'll tell okay. everybody <laughs> in Pakistan, they got it off <laughs> After I get my PhD, <laughs> then they'll have to respect me,
0: right? I mean, well, you will have a doctor in front of your name. Exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Is that the reason to get a PhD in philosophy?
1: Uh, you know, I um, I'm starting to think that it is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's because once I get that degree, everybody will finally have to give me the respect that I deserve <laughs> and start, you know, taking orders from. It. I assume. I assume this is how it's going to work. You know, I can't see any reason why. I'm just
2: kidding okay. It.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> uh, so, what I would love to see is the world uh, take a more active interest in philosophy, because mm-hmm. honestly, not to sound like a complete a hole here but i'm going to is <laughs> that kayla and i have been to a lot of these meetup groups <laughs> okay
2: gosh and
0: i have said i have said that uh even if it's called a philosophy group it'll it could be difficult for people to examine things in a philosophical way they're maybe interested in talking about these subjects mm. but uh it's it's uh when I'm reading your course syllabus and what you train the students to do is to examine the premises, state the premises, you know, that seems to be something very difficult for people to do. Uh, I'm not saying that they can't do it. It's just that they haven't been trained to do it. So how, how, how can we get people better, the average Joe, uh, better, better equipped with tools to do that?
1: Boy, I don't know. I mean, it would be nice if everybody could, you know, go to college and uh, take philosophy classes. Um, but, uh, and you know, you know, maybe if uh, you know Bernie Sanders gets elected, that'll be that'll become uh, easier for people to do. But um, it, it's a really difficult. It's really a difficult thing because in order to do um, philosophy in the way that I want my students to do, it, in the way that I like for people to do it, in the way that I most enjoy, you know, uh, reading it, philosophy and, and discussing philosophy. Um, you have to develop certain intellectual dispositions that go against the grain of ordinary conversation i mean this is a, this is a really roundabout way of saying that people who are into philosophy can be very annoying and frustrating to talk to <laughs> the jargon <laughs> well yeah i mean the jargon is one thing uh is part of it certainly but um, you know there's a there's a kind of relentless questioning attitude a, a willingness to entertain uh, outrageous uh, you know hypotheticals whether they're outrageous in the sense of being unrealistic or in the sense of you know um, requiring you to contemplate horrifying possibilities as we've been doing um, during this conversation um, and to you know um, not to uh, uh, speak again kind of too crudely here but to set emotion aside to some degree you know uh, I don't you know view you know intellectual endeavors as totally emotionless or anything like that but to set aside some of your gut reactions to things Aside to a degree and consider the merits of various positions, even positions that you suspect you'll never hold. Um, and all that can be very difficult to do. And people have kind of perfectly fine practical reasons for not doing it because in many cases it's just not useful because in many cases it's upsetting to people <laughs> that you might get into conversations with. Um, but if you're willing to go there and work at it, cause it is hard. Um, it never really gets very much easier i to say mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, it's very difficult to do um but if you're willing to do it it, it can be an incredibly um what's the word i'm looking for here it, it can be a it can produce a really profound shift in your thinking and your relationship to ideas um i have found you know my sense of it and of course it's impossible for me to know what you know what, what my going through my life would be like if I had never studied as much philosophy as I have. Um, but my sense, for whatever it's worth, is that my thinking is much clearer about things than it used to be, precisely because I have all this practice, you know, being confronted with arguments and saying, okay, what really are the fundamental premises here? How do they fit together logically? Why should I believe? What, you know, what, what really am I being told I should believe here? And then going through and saying okay if I feel some kind of discomfort with this you know which premise do I think is false it brings structure to your thinking um, in a way that uh, that can clarify your thinking that can give you um, uh, uh, can give you a kind of path to thinking more imaginatively about things um, I'm rambling on here I don't even know where I'm going with no, I mean
0: I could I mean I could definitely say for myself that uh, you know I um, I took my first philosophy course almost at random. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had an advisor who said, all right, and you have to pick an elective in this category. Here's the seven classes to choose from. What do you want to pick? And I saw a class that was called Moral Reasoning, mm-hmm. and I picked it on a whim almost, and I can say that it was probably one of the most important, valuable things I ever did in my whole life. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know exactly what you're talking about with the profound shift in your thinking. And uh, I mean, as I don't think I was a complete dolt before mm-hmm. I was taking these philosophy classes, but... It definitely made me think about things so much more clearly. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like it's one of those majors or anything that you study where it's, it's really about what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Because right. what you can get out of it is being an amazing public speaker if you want. Yeah. You, can get a, you can be an amazing writer, you know, yeah. whatever you want, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I'm remembering now that your, um, your original question was something like you know, how can we get people to think philosophically? And I don't really know the answer to that. I would say, you know, it's not for everybody. It's okay if people aren't really interested in in thinking about these things uh, in this way. You know, um, you can live a perfectly good life not doing that. You can even live a very intellectually rich life. Actually, I'm doubting that, as I'm saying. I think you you have to have some of these philosophical skills. You don't have to study philosophy, you know, proper. You don't have to study academic philosophy, certainly, to develop these skills, but I think to live in an intellectually rich life, you do have to develop these kind of skills that I'm talking about. But, you know, like I said, it, it's not for everybody. But this is, again, something I tell my students. You know, philosophical skills, as I said, they're about knowing how to deal with arguments. And an argument is something somebody has to give you anytime they want to rationally convince you of it. Right? So this is kind of my pitch at the beginning of a semester to, to undergraduate students is, uh, um, like I said, you don't have to care about the content really for itself. You don't even have to remember the content but if you want to uh, figure out how it makes sense to think when someone is trying to rationally convince you of something, which is going to happen you know, all throughout your life in education and all throughout your life outside of it, people are going to be trying to convince you that certain things are true in a more or less rational way. If you want to know how to deal with those situations effectively, studying philosophy is the very best thing you can do to kind of build that foundation. So that's my pitch to, uh, for philosophy <laughs> to the public. That's, you know, Given the opportunity, that's how I would be. Did you have anything
2: else that you um,
1: want to add? Oh. All right. Uh,
0: will your paper be available online for people to read if they like? Oh, my dissertation? Yeah.
1: Possibly. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I have a website, uh, www.joenelson.info, for anybody <laughs> who wants to, you know, look at my course syllabi and things like that. Um, Some pretty interesting looking readings on there. Uh, yeah. I... I yeah, I, I see no reason why, unless I'm ashamed of it or something. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, throw the PDF up on there. So it'll be a while, though. You know, we'll see by, you know, maybe this fall. Uh, check check at joenelson.info and see if it's up. Uh, All right, sounds good. All right,
0: uh, I'm going to have to read some more uh, arguments objecting to hedonism before I come at this again. But uh, sure, it was really awesome having you on, man. Happy to nice. talk with a with a with a real. Uh, Hedonist. Yeah, sure, <laughs> and, and you know, and if
1: uh, I'd, I'd be happy to come back and talk again anytime.
0: All right, sounds great. Right. Take.